Well, good morning, church. Welcome to second service. Sorry to disappoint you this morning. You almost got rid of me, but not quite. Didn't quite make it there. Like that burr in your sock. It just won't go away. It is good to be back. It's good to be with you again. It's good to be worshiping again. And, you know, in a few minutes, I'll share a little bit of the story because I know everybody has questions about what happened. But long and short of it, God was gracious and faithful. We're healing. Uh, we're going to recover. I got prettier. I got all kinds of new skin all over me. Uh, first time I've been wearing long pants in three weeks. So, uh, yeah, it's an adventure. But it's good to be back and good to be with you. And can, can I just say, first of all, Ron and I were just completely overwhelmed with your outpourings of love. And clearly the love language of MRCC is food because we got deluged with food. There was so much of it. We actually got three different rhubarb pies. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a lot of rhubarb pie, um, but a, a lot of other stuff. Just a huge, huge blessing. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, three weeks ago today, Rhonda and I were in a pretty serious motorcycle accident and, uh, and we're recovering from that. You, you don't see her here this morning. She will be here at the end of second service and then through third. She has a severe concussion. She doesn't have all this road rash and stuff that I have, but she has a severe concussion and, and that uh, she kind of has to limit being around loud noises and stuff for a while. It's going to take a couple of months, they said, for, but she is going to recover completely from it. So good news all the way around. Yeah, yeah, really good news. Thank you for your prayers. You know, the other love language that we have around here is evidently flowers, because you guys buried us in flowers. And can I just tell you what a mixed blessing that was? So when you have cracked ribs, right, the last thing in the world you want to do is sneeze or cough. And so in love, you filled our home with pollen. Thank you very much for that. And uh, it was like, wow, you know, uh, but really cool, uh, really sweet, uh, amazing. So many people just honestly completely overwhelmed. So um, thank you for that. And so many people called and texted. We actually, one family stopped by and they said, hey, we were at Costco. We were thinking of you. We know you probably can't make it to Costco. So we got you a whole bunch of toilet paper and here's a rotisserie chicken. Now, <laughs> okay, that's great, you know, but here's the funny part. So, you know, they were wonderful and dropped it off. And not five minutes later, someone else from the church called. And I'm not, I kid you not. They said, hey, we're at Costco. Do you need anything? Toilet paper or rotisserie chicken? Anything like that we could pick out of? It was hilarious. But, uh, um, but thank you. Uh, we have been very much blessed and well taken care of. And, and uh, as part of the message, I'll share a little bit of the story about what happened because I know so many of us have questions about that. But, but first, just a couple of announcements, just a couple of things to be aware of before we open God's Word together. Uh, one of those is that uh, coming up on the 26th of August, that's a Saturday, starting at 3 o'clock, a uh, fellowship event's going to happen. It's a, an Enumclaw area scavenger hunt. Janae is hosting this. It's just a fellowship time, a fun time to meet people, come together. It's going to start at 3 o'clock that Saturday at the public library. Uh, and, and I had nothing to do with this, but Janae is going to send you out hunting for these little rubber ducks that are hidden all over Enumclaw. And there's clues. You know how scavenger hunt works. So it's just a fellowship experience. So that's coming up in a, in a couple of weeks. Everybody's invited. Be, be aware of that. And then, of course, the Wednesday 
right after Labor Day, uh, so really just four weeks away, that will be when our Wednesday night uh, activities kick in again. Uh, Impact and Forge for the kids and culture for the youth, all that kind of stuff will be happening on Wednesday night. And then as we get into the fall and uh, the building next door gets finished, which it will be, uh, then we'll be able to bring back our adult Bible study on Wednesday night as well. And it's been a long time since we had that. I'm looking forward to that. So uh, that'll be happening uh, as well on Wednesday night. So stuff to be aware of. And then finally is the church picnic this afternoon. So after third service, you're invited to come back. We've got all the food, all the drinks, bring your lawn chair, your blanket, whatever. We'll be hanging out over by the annex and that grassy area. Um, like I said, we've got all the food. Bring your friends, bring your neighbors. Uh, a whole bunch of water toys, slip and slide for the kids, all that kind of stuff will be happening over there, volleyball, everything else. So that'll start right after third service. You're invited to come back and just be a part of that. Only one church picnic this year because of the construction, and this is it. But uh, a lot of people are working hard to make it happen, so you're invited to come back and hang out with us. This time. Bring your suntan lotion. It's going to get up to like 91, I think, by the end of the afternoon. Oh, and my wife asked. She's going to be here for a little bit of the picnic. And if you've been around our church picnics, then you probably know that Rhonda always starts the water fight, okay, at some point in the picnic. But she's begging you, please don't start it with her this time. <laughs> she's uh, she's really not up for that with the concussion and everything. So uh, I know you'll feel tempted, but see if you can restrain yourself about uh, starting the water fight with Rhonda. But all, all good stuff. You know, before we open God's Word together, I want to pray. And I know that probably you feel the same way I do. I really want to pray for for Maui and for Hawaii and for all that's going down there. I want you to know that Convoy of Hope, which is the, the relief arm of the Assemblies of God, is on the ground. They were immediately, uh, we're part of making that happen. And if you want a recommendation for someone to give through, uh, Convoy of Hope's a great one. Convoyofhope.org. It's the Assemblies of God outreach, and it's a wonderful uh, ministry. So that's happening. Let's, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, you know that, that Ron and I are, are thanking you not only, you know, for grace through the accident, God, and for healing, but just the amazing love that we've been shown by so many people. I, I thank you for that. We thank you for that. And it's just overwhelming. And God, deeply appreciative of that. And, and Lord, we come to you as well, thinking of all those on Maui and in that area. God, so many lives lost in such an awful way. Stuff lost, sure, but families and neighbors and friends. And God, we pray for your powerful healing in that place. We pray that you would touch people the way that only you can, God. Renew them, restore them, carry them in their grief. And, and help us as a nation come alongside to, to minister to them. God, we pray that your church there would rise up and show herself beautiful and glorious, serving one another, helping in every way that we can. We pray for that. We ask for your healing for Maui, God. And, and we lift up, as always, on Sunday morning, our kids' church. We know that's the most important thing that's happening. We pray your blessing on kids' church. We pray that your spirit would fill every classroom every moment with those little ones. We know they come first. And we ask as we open your word together, God, that you would help each of us to hear you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, greeting to everybody joining us online as well in second service. We're thrilled to have you with us. I uh, hope you're as air-conditioned as we are. We are, so that's a good thing. 95 and 96 this week. Did you see that? That's going to be good. 
Um, open your Bible, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to take a little break from our series in Luke's Gospel. The Lord laid this on my heart as I was down the last couple of weeks. And apologize if traffic was a little crazy. I'm out of the pulpit two weeks. I preached too long in first service. So I'm going to get that under control in second service. All right? Okay, we got that happening there. 2 Kings chapter 5. And let me let me ask you if you're like me in that. You really don't like losing control. <laughs> I mean, all of us feel that way. Sometimes we fear losing control more than we fear almost anything else. And you can tell if you're a little bit of a control freak, if you always want to be the one driving, <laughs> if you always have to have the remote control in your hand, you know, if you're always the one who has to make the decisions. Most of us, crave control and and fear the loss of it. You heard about the border collie and the sheep who were dating. And the sheep complained that the border collie was too controlling. And so the dog said, what do you mean I'm too controlling? And the sheep said, you heard me. Rhonda said I wouldn't dare tell that this morning, so I did, honey, I did, so, yeah. But I want to talk about control and losing it because we fear it, because we crave control, because we think it's the answer to all our problems, until we discover the loss of it. And, and three weeks ago on that Sunday afternoon, Ron and I experienced a complete loss of control. Now, probably most of you know, I mean, I've ridden motorcycles my entire life, and I, I know how to ride. I know how to ride well. I've been in all kinds of situations, and over the course of 50 years, I have learned how to feel comfortable and in control on the motorcycle. And I, until a couple weeks ago, I would be the one always saying, hey, I'm the guy who's never had a wreck. Well, I'm no longer part of that club. But we're riding on the bike, and what happened was it was a gorgeous summer afternoon, and we thought we were going to have to be taking care of our dog. She had this infection, but she was getting better, and so we thought we could leave the house, and we decided, hey, let's run down to Eatonville and have dinner. It's a gorgeous summer afternoon, and so we jumped on the bike and headed out, and we came down through South Prairie, and uh, for most of us are familiar with the area between South Prairie and kind of that hoarding junction, there's the railroad bridge there with the park and stuff, and there was a lot of traffic, this beautiful summer afternoon, and, and about 50 miles an hour, 45, somewhere in there, and we're riding, and um, when, when you ride on a motorcycle, you're always looking three, four cars ahead. You, you don't watch the car ahead of you as much as you watch several cars ahead, because you know you need extra time to react to anything that might happen. So I was doing that, um, and there was a blue pickup truck, and I don't know if a dog ran in front of him or a deer or a child maybe was straying towards the road or something, but all of a sudden, he jumped on his brakes 100%, blue smoke, skids, the whole nine yards. Of course, everybody else did the same thing, and uh, we were four cars back from him and so I saw that happen and I knew what to do I immediately got on my brakes evenly shifted down I knew what to do and I remember having the thought hey I've been here before I know what to do I got this 
the bike started to fishtail a little as everybody was skidding, and I knew, okay, I got let off, I got to give a little gas, so I'd get off onto the shoulder, get off onto the side. And I remember thinking very clearly, I got this, I've been here before, I know how to handle this situation. And then something happened, and I, I don't know what it is to this day. I, I, I'm guessing on the side of a big cruiser bike like we had, there are these metal plates where you rest your feet on the freeway when you're on a long trip. And I think one of them caught the pavement. I don't know that for sure. That's what makes sense. Whatever happened, the next thing we know, the bike flipped into the air and threw us off. And that's a heavy motorcycle to be flipped into the air. And so suddenly, you know, we're airborne. And, uh, you know, it's a weird thing that the experience for me, maybe you've been in an accident and had a similar experience, but it was very robotic for me the whole way through. I had this kind of laconic voice just sort of in a monotone talking the whole time. And I remember thinking, okay, I got this under control. I'm starting to fishtail. Okay, give it a little gas. And then, oh, we're flying through the air. Greg, you're flying through the air. You're the guy who's never been in a motorcycle accident, but now you're in a motorcycle accident. And I remember thinking, okay, you're going to hit the ground. Man, that's going to hurt. And then, boom, I hit the ground. And then I remember thinking, okay, that's probably did some damage. And then I'm rolling and coming to a stop. And I remember the voice going, all right, you need to find out how beat up you are. And came to a stop and thought to myself, I think some of my medical training kicked in because I said, all right, are you breathing? Anything wrong with your airway? No, you're breathing fine. Okay, are you bleeding? I don't feel any bleeding. Okay, look at yourself. I looked, I had this enormous hematoma on my arm. And I thought, okay, you broke your arm, not a big deal sit up. So I sat up and I looked at myself. Jeans were all tore up and stuff. And I said, well, it doesn't look like anything too bad. Where's Rhonda? And I immediately looked over. And that was the hard moment, friends, because I saw my wife lying motionless in the middle of the highway without her helmet on. And if you want to know what a loss of control is, that moment's a loss of control. Now, it's, it's the grace of God that we weren't more severely injured. Both of our helmets were badly damaged, and both of our helmets came off during the accident. And yet neither of us was killed or severely injured. I got shoulder, ribs, all kinds of road rash. Rhonda's got a pretty bad bruised hip and a severe concussion. No broken bones in a 50-mile-an-hour. I, I got to believe that's miraculous. And our helmet's coming off, and I don't even have a bruise or a scratch on my head. You know, um, but in that moment when I saw her there, wow, you know, it's not something anybody wants to see. And I immediately got up and went to her, and she was concussed, and she kind of had that, have you ever seen a football player concussed? Their arms are in tight, and they're shaking a little bit, and her eyes are unfocused, and I could see that right away. I immediately assessed her, you know, no bleeding. She's breathing. She's fine. So I wrapped my arms around her. A lady was coming from the car in front with her phone. I said, you called 911? She said, yeah, I'm calling them right now. People were getting out and taking care of traffic. People were great. And then I said, Rhonda, um, I need you to hold still. She, she put her hand down her hip. She said, I want to sit up. My hip hurts. I said, honey, you can't. It's your neck, your head. We got to keep them stable. We can't move you at all until the ambulance gets here. And and it was actually a little bit funny in the moment because I said that, and she went, okay. And then, like, 
15 seconds later, she said, oh, my hip, I want to sit up. And I said, no, honey, we can't. we got to keep you stable. Can't move your head. And, okay. We did that like 25 times over the next 15 minutes because she was concussed, right? And um, to this day, she has no memory from the bike flipping until about 1 a.m. in the morning in the ER. So she lost all that memory again. But, you know, I, I held her there. I kept her safe. People were helpful. And then the ambulance showed up and took her. And uh, then another ambulance took me. We went over to Tacoma ER. Um, they checked us out. It was amazing. I thought for sure my arm was broken. So did the ER doc. But it wasn't. Grace of God. And, um, you know, it was a long night in the ER. And then we came home the next morning. And by the way, you know, one of the ministries of MRCC that doesn't happen in public a lot is what Pastor Dave does with visitation. He is constantly visiting people in the hospital, in their homes, meeting needs and situations all throughout our community and the surrounding area. And Pastor Dave was amazing. He he drove twice to the Tacoma ER in the middle of the night on that Sunday night to be with us, to take care of us, to bring us clothes because they had to cut off all our clothes. And I got to wear Dave's pants. That wasn't joyful, but, um, you know, took care of us and uh, and then drove drove me home in the middle of the night. And it was, anyway, it was amazing. And that's a ministry we don't see in public all the time, but it is a big, big, big deal. And those of you who experienced it know it. And uh, we got to experience it that night. But I share all that, not only so that you can kind of know the story, but also because it's when we lose control sometimes, we lose our control, that we most deeply experience God's healing. And that's important to understand. That's important to grasp. At the end of my message this morning, I want to share with you something God did supernaturally to bring healing into me the week after the accident. But first, uh, let's look at this story in 2 Kings chapter 5 about a guy with a loss of control. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It's the story of Naaman, one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. And here's what the Bible says. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now that's that's kind of a significant thing in and of itself because Aram is an enemy of Israel. Sometimes we get into this superstitious mode where we think God's always on Israel's side, but in this story, we're going to find God on the side of an enemy of Israel. It's important that we remember those things because God isn't beholden to a nation. God is sovereign, and his mission is above all those things. And here's an example of it. Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, even over Israel. Again, don't want to belabor the point, but let's grasp that. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So let's digest this for a moment. From the outside, Naaman was a guy who had his life under control. He was successful. He was popular. He was respected. And the phrase valiant soldier connotes that he lived with character and integrity. Valiant is hard to translate from the Hebrew. The idea is a good man inside and out. Naaman was that. 
kind of like the rich young ruler in the Gospels when he meets Jesus and we find out that he's kept all the commandments all of his life. He's serious about God. Naaman is a little bit like that. This is a guy who's got it together. But when we realize that, of course, let's remember that the Scripture tells us that he got that way because God's hand was in his life. Through him, the Bible says, the Lord had given victory to Aram. So it was not Naaman winning unilaterally. It was God's blessing and grace on his life. Lots of people are, are blessed because of the gifts and grace and the advantages God has given them, and they're tempted to think that their success is because they're such good people themselves. But over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, Greg, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? In other words, God reminds us that some of us are blessed not because we have achieved, but because God has blessed us with advantages. Some of us have one talent, but some of us have five, and some of us have ten. When we're tempted to pat ourselves on the back, we should remember that, no, we've only achieved what we've achieved because God has enabled us to and graced us to. I know a couple whose adult son wrestles with mental illness, and sometimes they're, they're tempted to compare him to other people's kids, but they know they can't because he hasn't been given the same gifts and advantages. He's fighting an uphill battle in ways that others aren't. And Naaman is someone who has had God's blessing. But despite all his successes and all his achievements and all his control, he has a problem. A real problem. He has leprosy. Now, in our day, leprosy has nearly been wiped out. It's a simple vaccine, boom, it's over, it doesn't happen, you're cured. But if you know anything about this horrible disease, you know that Naaman would trade all his successes for a cure. Leprosy is debilitating. It destroys you progressively. It just day after day wears away and eats away at you. Most people who have leprosy would eventually die from infections and gangrene that would spread throughout their body because they didn't notice they'd cut themselves or bruise themselves or hurt themselves. It's a horrible disease. And Naaman has that disease. And when you have something like that, you trade almost anything to be rid of it. You know, when I got out of the ER all covered with bandages and road rash and Pastor Dave was driving me home, I thought to myself, that first shower is going to be glorious. And I would have given anything to skip that first shower. And then as time went by, both Ron and I, when you have all that pain, it's really hard to sleep. Some of you know. And so you'd sleep 20 minutes, wake up, sleep 15 minutes, wake up. It's just miserable throughout the night. And you'd, you'd give anything to, to not have that. Naaman has got that kind of situation in spades. It's terrible. It's awful. It reminds me of NFL quarterback Jim Kelly, who led the Buffalo Bills to four consecutive Super Bowls in the early 1990s. He made lots of money, won lots of awards, had an incredible living playing a game he loved, but he had a son, Hunter, who was born with an awful, debilitating disease called globoid cell leukodystrophy. And he ultimately, at the age of eight, died from that disease. And I remember watching an interview with Jim Kelly as tears streamed down his face. He said, I trade all the Super Bowls, all the wins, all the successes, all the accolades, all my health for his health. And Naaman is feeling something like that. He's got so much, but this leprosy, it casts a shadow over everything. 
And in Naaman's day, there was no cure for that, no vaccine. So his only hope was a miracle from God. And there's a miracle in his future. We're going to see that in just a moment. But here's the thing. It's not going to come the way he wants. It's not going to come the way he expects. It's going to require him to lose control in order to receive that healing. Now, here's what the scripture goes on to tell us, verses 2 and 3. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. Remember I said Aram was the enemy of Israel? Had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She was a slave, deported, taken to a foreign land, and forced into a life of servitude. But here's the amazing thing. She said to her mistress, this slave girl, this oppressed, captured girl, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And I want to pause for just a moment and invite you to think about this young lady. She's a slave. She's been captured. She's been abducted. How would you feel if you were in her shoes? How would you feel about the household that you were forced to serve, about the people that you had been made a slave to? Would you hate them? Would you want to fight against them? Would you be looking for ways to poison them or destroy them or at least bring adversity into their life? Many would, but, but not her. She sees a bigger picture. You know, Jesus says to us, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons, daughters of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good, and he sends his reign on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? It's nothing special about that. Even the tax collectors do that. But if you And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? But... Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. She's choosing to do just that. And it's an amazing moment. Can I just invite us to recognize that you can tell if your heart is healthy or not by whether you want to help your enemies find God. You can tell whether your spirit is mature or not, whether your faith is whole or not by whether you want to help your enemies find God. That's what the slave girl wants. That's what she desires in this situation. That's why she speaks up on behalf of her master. Can I just tell us that if all your eggs are in the basket of this world, that's tough to do. But if your eyes are fixed on the kingdom that is coming, on the eternity that lies ahead of us, then it gets really easy to do. And this girl finding herself in this situation finds in her heart nothing but a desire to see her enemy healed and reconciled to God. And so she speaks up. She says, hey, I want you to meet my God. I want to invite you to meet him. He is for you. He wants to redeem you. Is that how you feel about your enemies? That's what God calls us to feel. If your ideas about God or your ethnic background or your economics or your politics lead you to hate your enemies, you're out of step with your Savior who desires to save them. And here's his words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This slave girl knows she's on the planet for much more than her own welfare. 
And she is what Jesus would call a true Israelite because she knows that the purpose of her nation is to share the good news with lost people, even her enemies. So she invites Naaman to meet her God. She invites her enemy to be healed and saved by her God. And when I think about her, it, it reminds me of a moment I'll never forget my first week in college when I went to Bible college to go into the ministry. And uh, Dr. Pakoda, uh, the chair of the New Testament, the, one of the senior teachers at our school, always insisted on teaching the freshman incoming class because he wanted to, to lay a foundation. And on the first day of class, he told us this. He said, hey, you're going to get two grades this semester from this class. He said, you're going to get a grade that's based on your academics. It's going to come from your homework and your exams and your class participation, and you're going to get a grade based on that. But he said, at the end of this semester, you're also going to get a grade from God. And it's not going to be based on academics, and it's not going to be based on exams, and it's not going to be based on homework. It's going to be based on how you treat each other, how you love your friends, your neighbors, and your enemies, how you live the Christian life. And he said to us something I've never forgotten. He said, I want you to choose right now which A you want. And in the same way, God says to us, hey, there's, there's a lot of A's you can earn in life. But then there's God's A. Decide which one you want. Choose which one you're going to pursue. There's a lot of people that fill their life with A's. But when God grades it, it's an F. And there's a lot of people whose life is filled with C's and D's. But at the end, God says, A plus. And this young lady gets that. And so she's inviting her enemy to meet her God. It's an incredible moment. She had no idea that she would be remembered forever, but she is. We're still talking about her today. Now, hearing her, Naaman is essentially saying, hey, man, I'll try anything. So look at verse 4. Naaman went to his master, and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. And so his master, the king of Aram, said, by all means, go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel on your behalf. So Naaman left. And he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And the letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And he heads off to Israel. Samaria was part of Israel in those days. Like most people who don't know God, Naaman assumes he has to earn his way. So he brings a resume. He brings money and references. He thinks grace from God is something you earn by hard work and by sacrifice. And so he comes bearing gifts. He thinks that this experience with God depends on what he does for God instead of on what God does for him. And so he goes with this resume. Whenever I see this moment in the story, I think of a young man I met when I was a brand new pastor and him and his wife showed up at church one Sunday clearly their marriage was troubled we made a connection they enjoyed being there and so he started to come for a few weeks and I was reaching out to him and I invited him to go to lunch and we went to lunch one day and we got to talking and it was clear that he was not only intimidated by being in church but he had no church background at all like I once did and and as we got into this conversation and the troubles in his marriage and the struggles in his life we got to the point where I said to him, I, I, I don't remember his name to this day, so I'll call him Jim. I said, Jim, 
What do you think you would have to do in order to be adopted as God's son? And he said, well, he sat back in his chair and then he rattled off a long list of things that he would have to do. And when he got to the end, I said, what if I told you you don't have to do any of those? What if I told you that God wants to adopt you right here and now, that his grace is free and all that other stuff? He'll parent you through, but you're adopted in the moment you believe. He looked at me and he said, no way. It can't be like that. I said, it is like that. He said, no way. It can't be like that. And we started the dialogue. And eventually he gave up. He said, there's no way. I can't believe that. Naaman was in that place. Couldn't believe that God would give him grace for nothing. And so he goes ready to pay for it. And like many believers today, the king of Israel, when he hears about this, chickens out when the chips are down. He hears that Naaman is coming, and look at what verse 7 tells us. As soon as the king of Israel read this reference letter, he tore his robes. He said, am I God? Can I bring, kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. In other words, the king of Israel does what many believers do today, what maybe you've done more than once. He says to himself, I'm not good enough to help this guy out. God can't work through me in this guy's life. It needs to be somebody better than me. It needs to be somebody more accomplished, more achieved. Do you believe that God can use you to introduce other people to himself? Or do you think that can't happen? I remember as a young believer working in the emergency room, and there was another guy in the ER. His name was Mike Benicia. I'll never forget him. And Mike came from an unchurched background. I was a new believer. We would have conversations sometimes. And one night, we're in the ER. It's about 2 in the morning. It's a slow night. Him and I are in trauma room 2, sitting there just shooting the breeze and talking about my faith and his life. And suddenly, I just felt God prompt me. And I said, Mike, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior right now? And he looked at me, and he says, yeah, I'd like to do that. Wasn't the answer I was expecting in that moment. He says, yeah. I said, well, okay, let's do that. And we knelt down over the gurney in trauma room two, and he prayed to receive Jesus as his Savior that night. And I remember walking away going, wow, God could even use me. God wants you to have that discovery. He wants you to realize it. He wants all of us, his sons and daughters, to know that, to recognize that the living God can encounter people through us, that if we simply offer what little we have, God multiplies it. Elisha knows this. The prophet knows this. So verse 8 tells us that when he hears about Naaman, he says, have the man come to me. And what God wants to do in your life and mine is turn us into the kind of people who say, have him come to me. I'll share the gospel with them. I'll point them to a father who loves them. I'll tell them about grace. Have the man come to me, the prophet says. And so Naaman goes to him. But that's where the story makes a turn. So Elisha, when Naaman gets to him, Elisha says, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Simple, right? Easy instructions. Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and leprosy will be in your rearview mirror. But here's the problem. Naaman had come with a bunch of expectations. Catch this, friends. And when God didn't meet his expectations, he cops an attitude. Look at verse 10. But Naaman, hearing this, went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. After all, I saw it on TBN many times, and I thought that's how it would go. 
Are not Abama and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and he went off in a rage. It's tough when you go to God your way, and he insists that you come to him a different way. But that's what good fathers do. They're not slaves to our expectations because they see more, because they love us more than we can possibly imagine. They insist that we come to them on their terms. When you go to God for help or healing, whether it's in your body or your soul or your mind, you've got to understand that he knows what's going on in you much more than you do. And so his healing won't be on your terms. It'll be on his. And I wonder if maybe... You don't need to let go of some of your expectations so you can experience God's healing on his terms. Naaman had his own ideas about how God should work, and he wasn't willing to let go of him of them. Lots of people are like him. They don't want God to lead them into worship or prayer or fasting or serving the poor or disciplining their finances or whatever. They don't want God to introduce them to the gift of speaking in tongues or to the joys of submission to their spouse or to going to work like you're going to your job for Jesus. They want him to meet him on their terms. But again, because he's a good father, he insists that we go to him on his terms. Naaman detested the Jordan. It was a muddy little river in a foreign land, in the land of his enemies. And because he worshipped his country more than he worshipped God, he wasn't willing to meet God outside of his patriotism. But God insisted that he did. When you won't go to God on his terms, you cut yourself off from him. I think of when Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, she said, in Samaria, we worship God on this mountain in this way. Jesus said, hey, you worship what you don't know. Salvation is from the Jews. I am the Savior, and I'm offering myself to you right here and right now. It's not about a mountain. It's not about an ethnic background. It's about you and me coming to me on my terms. In other words, you can't go to God without going to Jesus specifically. But lots of people, like Naaman, try to do that. And when we go to him like that, he doesn't meet our expectations. I got to tell you, when I got out of the ER, I was ready to be miraculously healed right away. <laughs> I was not looking forward to the process of healing. But God had a different plan. Lots of people want God to do stuff on their terms, but because he sees more, he insists that we go to him on his terms. He calls us to worship. Do you know why? Because that clears our minds. The Bible says we can't think straight apart from worship. Lots of people are good coming to church, but they don't want to sing to God. They don't want to worship to God. Well, I'm about the message. Let's just get to the message part. That's what I'm here for. But God says the more important part is you worship. Because in worship, I do supernatural things in you. Church, please understand the most important thing we do on Sunday morning is not preach the word. It's to worship God. Because that's when the supernatural happens inside of us. Lots of people pray and, and try to overcome anxiety, but the Bible says that we overcome anxiety when we pray with thanksgiving. It's the act of giving thanks that sets us free from anxiety. Lots of people uh, want God, but they don't want his leadership. They don't want him ruling their finances. They don't want him ruling their work. They don't want him ruling their marriage. 
He calls us to obey his counsel on our sexuality instead of the silly and deceitful nonsense of a wicked world. But we say, no, God, I don't want it that way. I want it on my terms. He says, you're cutting yourself off from me when you do that. We go on and on. The point is that we can only experience God's healing on his terms. See, here's the thing, and here's where we wrap this up. Naaman's got a bigger problem than leprosy, but he doesn't know it. And so God offers him a healing that will not only cure his leprosy, but cure his bigger problem, which is prejudice and bigotry and hatred of his enemies. It's not just his body that's sick. It's his mind and his heart and his soul that are separated from God as well. And God wants to heal him of all of that. And so he says, I want you to go to Israel and wash in the Jordan seven times. Naaman says, I don't want to. And so he cuts himself off from God. Now, it's a wonderful end to the story because verse 13 tells us that Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed, to do a little thing? In other words, Naaman Humble yourself and go to God on his terms, not yours. And so Naaman goes. He gives up his pride and his expectations. He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, verse 14 says, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became as clean as that of a young boy. And in that moment, he was not only healed of his leprosy, he was also healed of his pride and his patriotism and his ego and his ignorance. Look at what he says in verse 15. Now I know there's no God in all the world except one in Israel. Now I know the truth about who God is because I went to him on his terms. That's what God wants all of us to experience. That's what God wants you to experience. I wonder if you don't need to set aside some expectations and go to God on his terms in your marriage, in your work, in your prayers, in your worship, in your church participation, in your family. Go to God on his terms. Let him have his way so that you can experience his healing. I said I wanted to share a story with you, and I want to do that here at the end. So after the accident happened, you know, I knew as I was going home from the ER, Pastor Dave and I actually talked about it, that, you know, it wasn't just my body that had been kind of knocked around a bit. It was my head, too. Uh, it was the psychological part of me. Because the accident was in my memory as this enormous, incredibly violent, overwhelming moment. And I could feel it like feathers in my chest. And as we drove home, Pastor Dave actually told me something I didn't know. He was in a bad motorcycle accident when he was young. And he talked about how it messed up his head as well. And he said it was weeks before he could kind of get over it. And as we were talking, I thought, yeah, I got some of that. It's in me. I, I saw my wife lying motionless in the middle of the highway. I felt lack of control. I felt the violence. There's something in there. But, you know, I, I don't know what to do with it right now, so let's get on with the physical healing. So we got home from the hospital. We went through that week. As the week is going by, I know there's something there that I know I'm going to have to deal with. We get to Thursday of that first week, and Ron and I are we're sitting at the table having dinner, something somebody made. By the way, three of you sent us rhubarb pies. Cool it on the rhubarb pie. All right, we got enough rhubarb pie. Thank you. But we're sitting there at the table, and Rhonda has no memory of the accident, and so she's always asking me about what happened. So I'm telling her, oh, this happened, and then this happened. And all of a sudden, I feel all that anxiety rise up, and I'm starting to hyperventilate. <laughs> and I can't go there. I can't, that can't happen. And so I 
I did what you should always do when you feel overwhelmed by anxiety. I got up and I took out the garbage. Works every time. Just heals you. All the garbage out. The recycling too. Take that out and you it helps. But, you know, I did that, but I also realized, boy, that thing's there. That thing's there. So when I went to bed that night, I said, God, I need help with this. I need you to, I need you to, to help me with this. I don't know what that means, but I need it. Went to bed that night and you know, this is still a point where we're waking up multiple times through the night because of the pain and stuff. I woke up, I don't know, 1, 3, 2 o'clock in the morning. And when I woke up, God was there in a supernatural way. And he showed me a vision. And he said, you shouldn't be surprised. The Bible says this is what he does. Now, in my life, there's been, I think, five times when that's happened. So it's not like it's every day. But it happens. It's real. And God showed me a vision. And the vision was very simple. They're always so short. It was like one second, but it was so filled with meaning. And in this vision, I saw like a grate, like a metal grate, like you see in this road that the water drains through, or you see in the foundation of a building, you know, for drainage. And he showed me a bucket of water being flung against the grate. Okay? And the Holy Spirit said, See how the water hits the grate with violence. But it comes out the other side and it's still water. It's unaffected by the grate. He said, you're like water. Greg, I want you to pass through the accident. I want you to just flow through it. Because the water is unharmed. It comes out the other side, water, just like it was on the front side. And in an instant, my anxiety was gone. God said, just flow through it. Just flow through it. Now you say, water, grates. Hey, I'm a weirdo. When you talk to a weirdo, you got to do weird stuff, right? But the reality is God meets you where you are. I didn't know I needed that, but he did. And boom, end of anxiety. Not a problem. It's gone. It's over. I'm healed from that. God does those kinds of things, but it's only when you let go of your expectations. You say, God, should I ask for a vision? Yeah, why not? God, should I ask for miraculous healing? Yes. God, should what, go to him on his terms. That's where his healing is. And by the way, just to wrap this up, there was an echo of the vision that's still with him. He said, and by the way, Greg, someday you are going to die. And it's going to be like water going through a grave. You're going to come out the other side, and you're going to be you. You're going to be with me. And so put away that fear, too, while you're at it. It's amazing what you can do with a great if you're God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, some of us, we've got all these expectations of how we want you to do things. And you're inviting us to let go of them and to do things your way and to surrender to your way. Help us to do that. God, whether it's in our marriage or our work or in our hearts, in our worship, wherever it is, help us to surrender our expectations and experience your healing when we do it your way. We pray for that, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Hey, I hope you can come back and join us for the picnic after third service. Everybody's welcome. Bring a neighbor, bring a friend. We got the food. Bring your lawn chairs, some shade. It'll be a great time. Thank you again for your prayers and your love. 
Thank you so much. And your rhubarb pie. And your pollen. Thank you for your pollen, honey. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this day. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon.